Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Atomic Retirement. I'm your host, Ryan Kilkenny, the founder of Atomic Planning, an independent, veteran-owned, fee-only financial planning firm bringing tax and retirement planning to families over age 50. Atomic Planning is a virtual financial planning practice in Kansas City, serving families from coast to coast, from California to North Carolina. Thanks for joining me and welcome to The Atomic Retirement. Today we're talking all things insurance, and I'm joined by Brock Buckles. Brock is the co-founder of BC Brokerage, an independent insurance brokerage that focuses on serving the families of fee-only financial planners, like Atomic Planning. Brock and his co-founder Peter help families across the country accomplish their insurance needs and get the correct life, disability, long-term care, and annuity coverage required to safeguard their financial goals. They also review insurance policies already in place and help me understand the current insurance market and whether a policy is still the best fit for the changing needs of the people I serve. What I love most about the movement that they've started is they always put their clients' interest first and lead with education, not financial products. They refuse to upsell and push insurance policies that people just don't need. If you have questions about life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, or even annuities, I think you're going to get a lot of value out of our conversation. And that's why I'm so glad to have Brock with us today. Brock Buckles, welcome to The Atomic Retirement. Hey, man. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me, Ryan. Glad to have you here. Could you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how BC Brokerage came to be? Yeah, definitely. So like you said, you already introduced me. So my name is Brock Buckles. Uh, I was born and raised and currently live in Indiana. So I was uh, from Muncie originally and then grew up kind of in a, a little small town called Alexandria. So very, very small. Unlike my business partner, Peter, who's from New Jersey and then moved to Carmel, which is a little bit bigger than I am, um, but grew up around here. Went to college at Indiana State and Ball State, and then uh, actually worked at Northwestern Mutual for about six years because <laughs> uh, it recruited me right out of college. And so um, kind of got to know that side of the industry and, and actually met Peter, my business partner, on the very first day. And it was funny because I was kind of wearing my dad's like suit coat that he let me borrow for the interview. And, you know, Peter had on this like pinstripes uh, suit. He's from New Jersey. So in the beginning, we actually didn't really like each other. We were kind of like, who is this kid? And he was like, who's this small town kid? But ended up finding out that we we liked a lot of the same things, kind of bonded over cars, some different things that we liked. And he left after a couple of years and I ended up staying. Um, and he was working independently and kind of found this niche. And he was working with like one fee-only advisor here in Indiana. And I was fed up doing what I was doing. I absolutely, I got to the point where I basically hated it. <clears throat> I didn't like calling friends and family. I didn't think everybody need permanent life insurance. I like the, the philosophies around it <clears throat> just drove me crazy. So I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, and so he said, well, I'm working with some of these fee only planners. I think there might be a, a chance here to actually offer them something and, and scale it and make it larger. And so uh, we decided to break off. And, and in 2020, January of 2020, we started VC Brokerage in an effort to uh, work with fee-only financial planners across the country. So started here kind of locally in Indianapolis and then expanded to surrounding states. And then ultimately now we're in all 50. So it's been a, it's been a wild ride, but it's been fun. 
I, I bet it has been pretty wild. What was it? Uh, what was it like to start a business literally two months before the COVID lockdowns? It was, uh, I, w- I would be lying if I said it wasn't a little bit scary. <laughs> I think that we were both just like, holy cow, what did we get ourselves into? Um, but you know, it was really great because I think a lot of people learned, uh, through COVID and at the beginning of COVID and kind of, you know, during COVID that you can work virtually and it is possible and you can, you know, meet with people over zoom. And that became obviously kind of a common occurrence. And so, um, I think it was a, it was a little intimidating, especially starting at the beginning of a pandemic, right? Like we had some money saved up. We knew what we wanted to do. We had an idea, um, so it was a little intimidating, but ultimately it was a lot of fun. And we we kind of learned what we wanted to do in the business respectively, what we were both good at and ran with it. And you've uh, obviously it's worked. It's worked. Yeah, it has definitely worked. And, you know, it's it's been one of those things where in the beginning it was me calling a lot of people, trying to tell them what we wanted to do, tell them that we wanted to work with them. And obviously having been in the insurance industry for years already, we knew a lot about the product and and we were kind of developing how we wanted to serve these family financial planners. But um, we really just built the thing off of the feedback of the people that we work with. So in the beginning, it was a lot of calling, hey, would you give us a chance? Some people kind of um, politely said no. Some people were like, don't call me again. Some people were like, yeah, I'll give you a chance. We'll meet. And so it, w- it was really great. I mean, you got kind of all sides of the coin there. Um, and then we've been really, really blessed that the people that we work with have really become kind of advocates for BC brokerage and gone out and told other family planners about what we do and, and how we don't upsell and, you know, um, all of that. And that's, that's really caught on. So now there's not very many days that go by where I don't get the, get a call from a financial planner or get the chance to meet a new one. So it's awesome. Yeah. I've quickly become a, a raving fan. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what you all do. And so like a, a little bit like about my practice and atomic planning or like me before atomic planning, you know, I had insurance licenses, Yep. Um, you know, so I could, I could sell term permanent life insurance. I could sell uh, annuities, long-term care insurance and all of that. And when I, when I launched atomic planning, I decided, you know, Hey, I, I didn't like that. You know, I, I, I didn't want to sell products, um, to my clients or to the families that I serve, but at the end of the day, you know, insurance, or at least at the, at the very least, an insurance review is like a incredibly important part of a complete financial plan and people let's face it. There are some financial risks that people cannot financially afford to take or get hit with. And they absolutely do need insurance. And so, you know, like before it was kind of like, you know, Hey, I'm the, uh, it's like, everybody needs a haircut and I'm the barber and Hey, lucky you, I've got the scissors, you know? Right. right. <laughs> so I, so I can cut your hair, but, but now the way it works, it's, it's different. It's like, Hey, you know, we have the, inf- the, there's a conversation with, you know, the family that I'm working with. And it's like, Hey, I think you need a particular type of insurance coverage, long-term care, life insurance, whatever the case may be. And, you know, we're going to plug you in with Brock because he's the subject matter expert in the field. He understands what's in the marketplace, the different options that are available. Yep. And he's going to get you the right coverage. And he's not going to, he's not going to upsell you or try to sell you something that you don't need. Right. Which there are a lot of people out there doing. Um, and it, 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 unfortunately, I think it gives the insurance industry such a bad reputation uh, because you just do, you have kind of, you know, 
I mean, a lot of people are just idiots. Like they're selling people stuff that they don't need. They're, they're upselling them. They're making all these empty promises. And at the end of the day, they're just making these huge rips and commissions off of people ultimately not knowing any better. And that, that really bothers me because um, anytime that there's somebody out there who's saying that there's a one, one size fits all or calling things a Swiss army knife or, you know, something like that, it's just very disappointing. And, and that's the, one of the things that we absolutely love to do. And, and we're trying to change the reputation um, of the insurance industry by offering people a trusted outlet and, and helping them know that their clients are going to get what they need. And, you know, we always say like education before implementation, because people need to know what they're buying. They need to know how it works. And they don't need more than they need, right? They just need what they need. And then, you know, whatever fits in their financial plan. So that's that's always been our goal. And so we've hit on insurance a little bit here, but what types of coverages or policies do you cover? Yeah, so we do life insurance, disability income, annuities, and long-term care. Um, now, when when I say annuities, some people are like, oh, you do annuities. It's like, yeah, we do annuities, but it's like, for people that want no market exposure, they need something that they want to just be safe. Like we're working with a teacher right now and she just cannot handle any market exposure. She's like, I can't do it. And the financial planner is like, I, I, there's not much I could do, you know, other than like guide her on this, but she just wants guaranteed money or we'll do something like 1035 exchange somebody into a more efficient annuity, somebody that's bought it years ago. Um, but those are, those are kind of the four main product lines. Okay. And so the 1035 exchange, um, could you tell people a little bit more about that? Cause they may not be as familiar with like what a 1035 exchange is like, who is that appropriate yeah. for? Exactly. So a 1035 exchange, the best way to say it is you're, you're taking money or you're taking one product and you're switching it to another. Um, and so, you know, if, if, um, if you had a permanent life insurance policy that you bought a long time ago, you don't really, you know, need it for the sake of insurance, but you want to, you want to explore long-term care you could 1035 or move that money into a policy that has a long-term care feature because it's more appropriate to what you actually need in your situation. So you don't need the death benefit. You don't need the life insurance for the sake of life insurance, but you do need to explore long-term care because it, it can be very expensive for people. Um, then it can be a great option. So 1035, you know, best way to say it is kind of moving, moving money or moving from one product to another. And it bypasses, it's, it, it bypasses a taxable event. Yep, exactly. So it's not like you're taking that money out and you're paying tax on anything above the principal. You just move the move it over. And so I know you said that you you entered the industry, like your first experience was with Northwestern Mutual. And did you do the internship program? I did. Yeah, I did. I, I actually had a friend and he was like, hey man, let's do this internship. And I was like, at the time I was, uh, I started college as a criminal justice major. Like I think I thought I was going to be a federal agent or something. Um, that didn't work out. And then I was a communication major and I'm like, why are you talking to me about this? Like finance, education, whatever. And then like, as soon as you start the internship, you quickly realize it's going to be about selling insurance. Um, and so, uh, that's how I originally got into the industry. And it really was, it was kind of like, this is what it's going to look like. You're going to get in here. You're going to call your friends and family. You're going to sell insurance. And then you're going to ask all of them for five names so that you can continue to go sell more insurance. <laughs> and you know, eventually you can get investment license. But for me, it was just so tiring. 
because I, I, you know, I w- was I good at it. Yeah, I was good at it, but it just wasn't something that was fulfilling. It wasn't gratifying. I didn't ultimately eventually believe in what I was doing. And that's why I get so much gratification working with you folks like you, because you guys are actually looking at the entire plan, right? You don't have minimum production requirements. And that's what, that's one of these things that a lot of people don't know um, is there's just so much pressure on the backs of these captive agents um, to go out and sell. Because if you don't, you know, number one, you can get fired if you don't. Number two, you're not going to be recognized if you don't. And it, 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 the culture, it really pushes um, kind of that atmosphere. No, I, I, I hear you. And in my own experience, you know, I know what it is like to have a production target. Like there was a certain amount of, uh, of money that I was expected to bring in on a monthly basis. And, you know, if I failed to hit that target or that goal, that was some arbitrary goal set by, you know, a fortune 500 firm, you know, if I failed to hit that, you know, I could be fired. And I, I've, I've seen people lose their jobs because, yep. you know, they just weren't good at selling, you know, selling products and stuff. But at the end of the day, the thing that is crazy to me is, and I'm sure you've kind of seen this on your end as well, but all the awards that these firms give to their employees are production-based awards. It's like the biggest producer and the biggest producer at the firm is not the person that's usually the best at giving advice. They're the best salesperson. They're really good at sales. Yeah, that's that's so true. And it's disappointing because you could be at a company like that, one of the big companies, right? Big Fortune 500 insurance companies. And <laughs> you can literally have hundreds of millions of dollars under management, right? But unless you're selling a lot of insurance, it's not even it's not even really acknowledged. You know, so those people kind of go by the wayside to even qualify for a lot of these awards. It's a minimum production of like, you have to have this much in AUM, right? But you also have to sell a ton of insurance, right? And and it was just, I didn't like the the atmosphere, right? Like it was a bunch of like, there was like name tags and ribbons hanging all the way down to people's shoes. And everybody seemed to have the same Rolex Submariner. And I was like, wait, 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 you know, um, I, this is not working for me. And so and I think it just puts a bad taste in people's mouth. You know, I, I swear when I was doing that, I had friends who I called and they were like, why is he calling? You know, is it like, does he want to go grab a beer this weekend? Or do we, do, you know, because it was like everybody knew that it, there was so much pressure to sell things. And it, it was just, it, it, I, 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 I can't stand it. I really can't. For me, it, it kind of felt like a, a culture of a game of numbers. You have to talk to so many people to create a certain amount of activity. And I didn't start my career because I wanted to sell people stuff. You know, I started as a financial advisor because I wanted to help people. And, you know, right. Like my, my version or my personal experience of it was walking through neighborhoods and knocking on doors, you know, door knocking and introducing yourself to people. And at the end of the day, what I discovered is that, you know, I probably upset a lot more people that were like, Hey, what are you? why are you at my door? Why are you trying to talk to me about this stuff? Um, and it was like, what, what am I doing? Where am I at? Yeah. It's just not, I mean, it wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't gratifying. Now 
did I, did I go through the entire experience and never learn anything? No, I can't say that, right? Like you get comfortable having conversations, you know how to, and I've always been pretty outgoing, but you, you, you get comfortable, you learn how to have conversations with people there. They do have a relatively, you know, good um, rating when it comes to like the internship program, but the overall culture was just like sell, 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 sell. And then guess what? J1 comes around, you got to do it all over again or else you're not really, you don't really mean anything. You know, and so throughout your career, it's always this pressure, this this pressure, and they always want to stack you up against somebody else. It seemed like that was one of the tactics as well. It's like, well, look what they're doing over there in that office, right? Like, look what so and so is doing. Don't you want to be up on stage like so and so? You know, it's like it was like the the head the, the head football coach in high school's mentality, except for it was insurance. So it was it it, it wasn't going to be a long term play for me. And so, how were you taught to sell insurance or to position? insurance products? Yeah. So a lot of times people would talk about it um, and they would be like, well, you can't really say this, but they would say things like it's a Roth IRA on steroids, right? So you get all the tax benefits, you can contribute more to it. You're going to have it, you know, it's, it's going to be better long-term. And it was always the approach of doing insurance before any other types, right? any other types of anything. So it was wealth preservation and distribution was last. So that was taxes, wealth accumulation. But first it was all about protection. So the first thing that you did was you asked people all these questions, right? You started out by asking them all these questions about, you know, where do you want to be personally, professionally, financially was the language, right? And then you'd get to the asset page and then they would literally train you to say, okay. And then you'd sit back in your chair. Right. And you say, I wouldn't, and then we have to talk about something that's a little bit more serious. And so you'd ask them, what do you know about life insurance? Right. And then they'd say it, say it, say it. They talk to you about kind of what they knew and then you'd move on to disability income insurance. Right. And this was actually a tactic that they used. And what they'd say was, so what do you know about disability income insurance? And people would usually not know a ton or they'd say something like, I have some through work, right? You say, yeah. So do you know how that's taxed? And they'd say, oh, about, you know, no, I, I'm not sure. So you'd say, well, if it's paid by your employer, then it's taxable. So you'd be making about 45% of your income. But let me just ask you, if you had to cut your income in half today, how would that make you feel? Right? And then people would say, obviously not very good, <laughs> right? And so you said, well, if, if I could you know, if I told you for free, we could cover your income up to 80, 85%, no brainer, right? If I told you it was $2, no brainer, right? If I told you it was $1,000 a month, you'd probably tell me to go fly a kite. And they'd say, yeah. So at what point does it become too expensive to where you're no longer willing to insure that risk? I don't know, two, 300 bucks a month, right? Because you've done the zero and the thousand game. So they land somewhere in the middle. And so you would say, Okay, great. Well, usually what we're talking about is $150 a month. Would you mind if next time we got together, we talked about how we could implement that? No. Okay, great. And so now you've already sold them, right? And so now you, you get back to the next meeting and you open it up. You go, you remember how I told you that was going to cost about 150? Great. Sign here, press hard, third copy is yours, keep the pen. Like that was the attitude. Um, and, and so that that's the way it really was. And by the end of the meeting, the goal was to have the person so comfortable that they'd give you five names of people that they know so that you could just go do it again. Do you know what I heard like through the sales pitch? What's that? To me, it sounded exactly like walking to onto a car lot and the the car dealer's like, well, how much can you afford? What are you looking to keep your monthly payment at? Right. And then you you answer the question 
And then it's like, they got you. And before you know it, your credit's getting checked. (laughs) You're scanning your driver's license to take a test drive. Yeah. Yeah. And then you end up with like an 84 or 96 month car loan, you know, because that was what it took to get you into that payment. Yeah. And that's a much different approach, right? Than saying like, what do you actually know about disability income insurance? Okay. Here's what it does. Here's how it protects you. Really, we're talking about it being kind of the the umbrella over the financial plan. You're going to have it in case something were to happen, right? We obviously hope that you never have to use it, but what questions do you have around it, right? Like you're not, and now it's like, how can we help you understand it more so that you want it? rather than I'm selling it to you. And so that that over the years has been the approach. And you just don't know what you don't know, right? Like you're an early 20-something-year-old kid. This is what they're telling you to do. You're in college. This is your first real experience in, in a professional world. Um, professional world. Um, and, and, and that's just kind of what, what they're, what they're preaching. So, but that was, yeah, that was kind of the idea in terms of selling stuff and, and what it looked like. I'm going to ask you the million dollar question. Who needs life insurance? Yeah. So in terms of um, who needs term insurance, I, I I say it's kind of a it's kind of a twofold answer, right? Like if you have somebody that relies on your income, um, they would rely on your livelihood. You've bought assets together, right? Um, it can be a really really good idea. And I'm talking about term insurance, right? So very inexpensive, covers the need. Um, now the caveat here. And this is the part where just being in the insurance industry, I do like to have this conversation. I do like to educate people on it. If you're a young single individual, you might think like, no, you probably don't need life insurance. Now, here's what I would tell you. Illnesses and things do come up, right? So twice this year already, we had people that previously applied for insurance actually got cancer and now they can't get the insurance for another five years, even though they really, really need it now. So when when people say, well, should I get it before I have a family, before I have kids? It's like, if you care about locking in your health rating, it's something to consider. But by no means does that mean that you need to go out and pay $1,000 a month into a term policy, right? It might mean that you need to go out and get a $20 a month term or, or a permanent policy. It might mean that you go out and get a $20 a month term policy, which is really the cost of like two IPAs or three IPAs with your friends on the weekend, right? So it, it, it's going to be a lot more beneficial. Um, but in terms of a permanent insurance, that's a whole different gamut. A lot less people um, kind of need it. And it, it's a lot more specific in terms of who should actually be able to, or sh- who, who actually needs it. And so, um, and, and quick difference between term and, and permanent, obviously, you know, but term insurance is basically something were to happen, it pays out. There's no side fund. There's no cash value. It's very, very, it's, it's the most basic type of life insurance um, for the people that are listening. And then whole life, obviously you've heard it's got cash value. It's got a death benefit, it, you know, grows over time. It's a lot more moving parts, a lot more complicated. Um, but in terms of who needs permanent life insurance, if it's a long-term care plan, like kind of how we already touched on, it can be a good option, right? Um, if there's special needs planning that need to be that needs to happen, and there's somebody that has special needs in the family, and there needs to be kind of an injection of cash with the uh, passing of the caretakers, it could be a good option. Um, if you completely run out of other places to put money in, you're maximizing taxable accounts, and you just need to stock some away, it could be a good option. Um, and if you obviously if you have an estate tax, so if you're an extremely high net worth individual who will need to have estate taxes offset so that you can transfer that wealth to um, whoever's going to receive it, it can be a good option. But outside of those parameters, 
Uh, it's way oversold and, and people make a lot of money doing it. I think the estate tax thing's a, a huge issue or, it, you know, at least like when you kind of put it into that perspective, it's like how many families out there um, on an individual basis or as, you know, a married couple uh, have a net worth in excess of 12 million, 24 million, you know, and, and change. Not many. What I feel like an area where I feel like people can talk a little bit more about, um, they're, they're talking about federally. And so there are some exceptions to that. And there are some states that do have estate or inheritance tax. Like I'm looking at a graph right now and it shows that like, take, take example, like a state like Oregon, Oregon has an estate tax on estates in excess of a million dollars. And so like in that case, like it, it may be worth it. Um, to look at a, a permanent policy because, you know, there are two likely things that are going to happen. Well, one, we know for sure, you know, we're not going to live forever. We're probably going to pass at some point in time. Right. It'd be helpful if we knew when and with how much money. But, you know, like, so, so we know that. And, you know, but a lot of families out there will know, like, hey, am I, am I north of the state, my home state's estate or inheritance tax? And if so, like, what might that tax bill, that future tax bill look like? And what's a great way to pay for that? Permanent life insurance is complete, it's completely appropriate, you know, in, in that type of uh, situation. Great way to use it in that type of situation. But once again, very specific, you know what you need, you, you know how to plan for it. Right. Um, the, the, the issue, and, and it's funny cause we're on Twitter all the time and it, <laughs> We we recently were talking to, or kind of in a, in a little discussion with an individual, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And then the guy called me out. He's like, "Any fee based advisors?" I'm like, "You got the wrong guys, pal." Um, but it, it's it's guys like that, realistically, that that give the insurance industry a, a bad name, you know, because we're we're sitting here talking about how it's appropriate. It's not like I hate permanent life insurance or you hate permanent life insurance. We hate the misappropriation, misuse, and people being taken advantage of when it comes to it, right? And contribute to this instead of your 401k. Don't do investments. Why would you do that when you can have a permanent life insurance policy, right? Um, uh, somebody commented, I think, on, on one of your posts or on one of mine, and they actually had a video. It was a YouTube link. And the guy, he opened by saying, today, I'm going to tell you why indexed universal life is better than your IRA, your Roth IRA, and your 401k put together. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is bad. So yeah, are there are there places and times and situations where it's appropriate to have permanent life insurance? Absolutely. But do a lot of people get taken advantage of? Without a doubt. People like to, yeah, like on Twitter or even on LinkedIn. Um, yesterday, I had a pretty funny interaction with somebody that was a career captive life insurance agent at state farm. Like, it's like, I, I, I get it. Like, I'm sure you gave everybody the Patrick price or what have you. But if you are a captive agent, you are only able to sell products with your firm's logo. So like, it's like you're wearing the polo with state farm or Allstate or what have you. And you can only represent that company and its products. It's like, in what world would we say that, you know, that's probably the best option and they have the best policy that's out there? Yeah, it's just not. I mean, and, and their argument would be like, well, you're bundling it with your auto and your home. So we have, a, you know, and it's like, 
it's almost never cheaper, number one. So that's something to know. I mean, if you don't have or you, you're not working with someone who has the ability to represent multiple carriers and show you different options, then you're almost never going to get the good deal, right? It's just, you're just not. cap Being captive is not something that encourages people to be educated or get the best deal or get the best rate or help them find something that's actually tailored to their situation. And I always say the best way to think about it is when you're captive, you're going to a, a potential prospect or a client and trying to sell them on why they should buy you and your company. Whereas when you're independent, you work with multiple carriers or you know over 100 carriers, you're bringing somebody's situation to market and you're saying, okay, what are the things that we need to be thinking about? What are the considerations here? Okay, now let's go find the carrier that actually can check all of those boxes, right? So the ball's in the client's court rather than the, the company's. Absolutely. And you know, there are certain companies that like from a life insurance perspective, you may want to run a policy through a specific company instead of another. And if you actually went with the wrong company, that could have a bad outcome for the family that you're trying to get this coverage because it could like could pop up a red flag. Absolutely. And and the other thing is it's like people don't think about it. Like you could likely be spending thousands of dollars a year more than you need to, right? So when I was at my previous firm, I saw on a lot more than one occasion, people who use tobacco, right? And if you use tobacco, you're going to have higher insurance rates, right? But here's the thing, and it might be as high as double, depending on what your health and health looks like. Like your original premium that you were quoted could have been a hundred dollars and it could go up to $300, right? And the appropriate play there would be, okay, but we know that Prudential doesn't really care if you use tobacco because they built it into their underwriting, meaning that they'll accept it. And so, yeah, maybe it won't be 100 but maybe it'll be $130 a month instead of $300 a month, right? But a lot of times what I saw was they'd place the $300 a month policy anyway and then say, well, if you quit smoking one day, then we, then we can lower the premiums, which is obviously the wrong thing to do. You're having people pay $170 more per month just so the money goes in your pocket. So it's it's like that. That's the other thing is a lot of times there's an incentive to um, not do the right thing, and and that's why you have to be careful with the captive as well because they have people to report to and they have to have numbers that they put up. So a lot of times they're thinking about lining their pockets rather than actually helping you in your situation. And it's it's funny you say that because I had a conversation. I think it was two or three days ago uh, with a friend. Like I served in the Marine Corps, and he's getting ready to to leave, and he wanted to you know kind of ask me about my experience because he's interested in. Which thank you for your service, by the way. Thank you. Um, but he's interested in like kind of following in my footsteps, and he told me a story about working with he or he met a Northwestern Mutual life insurance um, professional. And they tried to sell him on a policy. And then he has, he, he works with a financial advisor. It's not me. Um, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but his financial advisor then uh, searched the market. And I think they could look at five or six carriers or whatever it was and was able to get the same coverage for a cheaper price. So then he went back to, uh, to the company, in this case, Northwestern Mutual. And the guy was like, Oh yeah, we can get you that. And it was like, why didn't you sell me that in the first place? Yep. Well, production, numbers, recognition, requirements, you know, that and that and that's the thing. 
It's like, it's not even that people that work there are a few other companies that they can't broker it out. Like there are chances you can do it. It's that there's so much heat on your back to place it, right? Like there was one guy that I used to work with and he got so much crap because he would place disability policies with principal and he'd place disability policies with other companies that were actually cheaper, the better fit for his clients. But guess what? Like everywhere, the, the culture, the company, everybody, it was, it was hate directed his way because he's not right in Northwestern Mutual. And guess what happens if he's not right in Northwestern Mutual all the way up the ladder, nobody's making their commission. Right? So it's, it's a, it's a huge issue. And so how do you help people kind of evaluate and, find the right coverage or type of coverage for them? Like, are there certain questions that you ask them, a process that you walk them through? Absolutely. So we'll use life insurance as an example. One of the biggest things to consider there, and I always say, you know, a lot of people try to make the life insurance, like, what do you need, right? It's, and I always say, it's really more of a, what do you want, right? Because you could have somebody in the same exact situation, right? Like just two spouse, three kids, identical income, identical occupations, and they want something different, right? One may want to pay off the debt, right? And and then leave a little bit of money behind. And the other family might want to pay off the debt, send all the kids to college and leave like 10, 15 years worth of income replacement to the spouse, right? So identical situation, millions, millions of dollars of difference when it comes to the actual death benefit need. And so when we're talking to people, I say, what what, do you, what would you want to have happen, right? So you've got, you've got a mortgage, you've got car loans, you've got three kiddos, and they say, well, we want to pay off the house. I think that would be important. We want to pay off the um, cars. We don't want to leave the spouse with any significant debt. And we also want to send our, send our kids to private school K through 12. And then we'd also like to pay for their college, right? So based on the fact that we know that education costs can go up by seven to 8% per year, we look at what that costs. And then we kind of just, we just kind of dial in on a number and we say, okay, based on this, this is what it would look like. This is how it would cover you guys. So I just ask as many questions as I possibly can to understand what's important to them. Um, and, and then we really kind of dial down and in on the number. And, and it, uh, it's a lot easier than people think a lot of people are like, I don't know how much I want. It's like, well, we just have to talk about kind of what you want your situation to look like if that were to happen. And then we get it, they have the policy and we don't have to talk about it anymore, which is really, really refreshing to people because nobody wants to talk about their mortality, um, or passing away for any longer than they absolutely have to. But yeah, we, it's just a, it's a process of asking questions and understanding what's actually important to them and then going from there. And so it's unique for for every family, you know, absolutely. There's the spreadsheet answer, you know, Hey, here's what it says on paper, but you know, does that feel right to you? Like what, what feels right to you? Like your answer, your personal answer may not be the spreadsheet answer. Right. Exactly. And it's, I mean, and that's the thing, right? Like some people are literally like, you know, to be honest with you, if something were to happen, we're in our mid twenties, we've got some kids, but I, I'm not going to say that they'd never get remarried. Right. So I don't know that I need to replace the income until literally retirement with a $10 million life insurance policy. And then some people actually do say, if something were to happen to me, I don't want my husband, wife, spouse, whatever, to have to ever think about money again. So I do want it to be a big payout. And I do want it to go, you know, into an account where basically they can live off of it and continue the lifestyle that the way that they have. And then if they want to get remarried, great. If they don't, that's fine too. So it it really is just a, on a case by case basis. 
And we're not here to persuade people of one way or another. Um, whatever matters to them and is important to them, we diagnose it, we, we figure it out. And then when we actually go to look for a carrier, then we kind of get into the weeds a little bit more in terms of like health, what's any prescriptions that you're taking, anything that we should know about in the last 10 years. Um, we have to have the, have you ever had a DUI conversation? Cause that actually, you know, impacts it, but we look at all of those things. And then again, we take their situation and market really dialed down on who the best insurance carrier is going to be and, and, and getting the underwriting process. And so it's critically important that folks are honest with you through that critically. process. <laughs> yeah, critically important. Yeah. Cause if you lie on your insurance application and they find out they're just not going to offer you coverage. I mean, it, it, the buck basically stops there. So and I always tell people, like, I don't care what you do, right? Like, you smoke cigarettes and it's going to show up in your blood work, fine. And do you occasionally smoke marijuana? Fine. Like, it doesn't matter, but you can't you can't tell me one thing and then something else shows up in your blood work. I, I can't explain our way out of that. So you got to be straight up with me from the get-go. Do most people have to take a medical exam? So it's a good question. If you're relatively healthy, right, Um a lot of times now companies are coming out with instant or even accelerated underwriting. So there are a lot of options for, for people that are healthy to not have to take medical exams, which is great because I don't like being poked with needles any more than I absolutely have to be. Um, uh, and so a lot of people do get that and, and they will pull medical records, look at prescription history. You know, if they see something in your past, they might ask for doctor's records, but you don't have to actually have a, a paramedical examiner come to your house and do the whole deal. Um, but for the people that aren't as healthy or something kind of came up, a lot of times a medical exam is ordered. And so they're trying to get more efficient at it. I think that there was a lot of innovation and a lot of uh, headway when it came to that during COVID because nobody wanted anybody in their house and insurance companies still had to find a way to make money. <laughs> but uh, it is a there are a lot more um, opportunities to not have to take a medical exam than there used to be. It's possible to have a, a term policy today. And maybe there is a way where that policy may have an option to convert it to a permanent policy, you know, one day. What would you say to people that are kind of in that um, type of scenario or situation and they may be thinking about converting a term policy to a permanent policy? What should they be thinking about? Yeah. So I would say you have to you have to look at your situation, right? If it's a situation to where You've had the term policy, you're nearing retirement, you want to start thinking about long-term care and you can convert that term policy into a, a permanent policy where you can actually explore that might be a good good deal, right? Um, now, if you don't have a need for the permanent insurance and you have assets that are sufficient enough and you feel good about it, I don't see why you would. So you, you really have to assess where you're at, what your priorities are. Is there any type of special needs planning that you're doing? Um, do you have a health consideration where you do need life insurance for a longer period of time than you currently do? But if you let your term insurance policy expire because you have health issues, you won't be able to get more coverage. Well, then maybe you should think about getting permanent insurance because you do have that option in your contract without having to go back and, and go back through the underwriting process. So if it's a situation where you need it um, and you can't get it again, that could be a good option as well. But I don't think be intimidated by the prospect that just because your term insurance policy is, is expiring, that you have to go convert it unless there's absolutely a specific need to convert it. Moving into long-term care, you know, I find that a common misconception out there is that people think that Medicare covers long-term care. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, that's it, it's something that we hear all the time. Everybody thinks that, and it's like, 
Could you spend all your assets down and and get put into a place where most likely you're not going to like the standard of care very much? Sure, right? Like they're not likely just going to have you on the side of the road. But the issue is if you want any, any type of, um, if you want any type of control over what your long-term care situation is going to look like, it's it's important to explore it. Now, a lot of people will try to tell you that it's either self-insure or completely insure, meaning you know either have a long-term care policy or don't get one at all. Long-term care planning is not black and white, right? Like there's a lot of gray area where, hey, we don't need $10,000 a month, but it maybe would be helpful based on our assets and how we're going to look at our financial planning situation, how we're going to spend that money down to have a little bit of long-term care or a smaller long-term care policy. And then we can also take out of some of the money that we have set back. Right. And, and so um, there's never a one size fits all the long-term care planning. A lot of people try to say that either fully insure or you don't insure at all. I think there's a lot of middle ground. Another area that I find is kind of a, a misconception or people don't understand like what may qualify them to be able to use the policy. I mean, you've got these things called activities of daily living. Yes. Yes. So the activities of daily living are basically, you know, activities that you do in your daily life, for lack of a better way to say it. So eating, bathing, toileting, transferring, um, eating and incontinence, right? So being able to actually hold um, hold it in. But it, it, if you can't do two of those things, then basically you'd go to the doctor, they'd write a note saying that you can't do it. Um, and then you would qualify for the long-term care policy to start paying out to assist you in some of those expenses and that care that comes along with um, needing that. Now, with the long-term care, you kind of get into another situation where there's two types of long-term care. So you've got traditional long-term care and you've got hybrid asset-based long-term care. Now, the benefit of the traditional long-term care is sometimes it's a little bit cheaper and it's got cost of living adjustment. So the benefit can go up over time. The issue is, is when they started creating long-term care products in the early, um, a lot of them in the early 2000s, late 90s, they made these crazy benefits. So like they were very, very affordable. The benefits were super high. A lot of times they would last for your entire life. And then they realized that they didn't do the math correctly. <laughs> and so they started raising the premiums a lot. So for a lot of people that bought long-term care policies that are traditional, you know, we see them getting letters sometimes every 13 months saying that there's going to be an increase of premium. And John Hancock, we just worked with a couple um, that were both um, tenured professors. They just retired. Their premiums are going up by 30%, right? So that's not for everybody, for sure. Uh, a lot of people are seeing it kind of lean more to that hybrid asset-based model that is based on a permanent policy because they can't raise the rates on you. And you have a lot more say as to how you use it because with the traditional, a lot of times it's on a reimbursement chassis, meaning that you kind of have to spend that money and then turn in your receipts to get reimbursed for them. And if they see them as fit, they'll give you the money back with the hybrid asset base. It's more of once you hit two activities of daily living, they just start paying out whatever you know the benefit that was uh, designed for the plan was. So you can stay at home, you can go to an assisted living facility, nursing home, whatever that kind of looks like. Not to get into the weeds too much, but I think it's important for people to know that are kind of thinking about it. So another thing, that's a great point. Another thing that a lot of people don't think about is uh, most of these policies have some form of what's called an elimination period. Yep, It's like a, an amount of time that you have to spend out of pocket and then, yeah, not meet the requirements for the, or meet the requirements rather for the uh, activities of daily living to actually qualify for coverage. Absolutely. So you've got, you know, 90, 180, you could go up to years if you want to. 
Um, but yeah, typically there is, there is a waiting period that's kind of associated with those benefits paying out. Um, and it's kind of up to the people as to how they want to structure them and you know, how long they're willing to wait and how they want the policy, um, to look. If you obviously, if, if you only wait 90 days, it's going to be more expensive. If you're willing to wait two years, which most people are, they, they never really elect to do because nobody wants to wait two years before they start getting the benefit. It could be a lot cheaper, but it's not as practical. But I find long-term care insurance, it's, it's something nobody wants to talk about, you know, yep. but at the same point in time, nobody wants to go to a care facility. You know, they'd like to have, as you said, kind of choice in the matter, control over the situation, be able to stay at home if they can. And so you've got traditional policies that are kind of on a use it or lose it basis. And then you've got these hybrid policies to where, you know, you may be able to use it for long-term care benefits. And let's remember, like, I think it's important to remember the purpose behind why you buy a policy. Um, Cause the biggest bang for the buck typically is going to be that traditional long-term care insurance policy, but it's going to have less flexibility built into it. So if it bothers you because you're going to potentially be spending into a policy and never use it for long-term care and the, you know, the money goes wasted, you know, there could be a hybrid type policy like you're talking about to where you get some form of death benefit, you know, if you die in your sleep or if you just decide, you know, Hey, I don't, I don't want the death benefit. I don't um, think I'm going to, I don't want the long-term care coverage anymore. Maybe I can get some form of a return on my premium that I've paid in. Exactly. And that's an important part to think about too, right? Because it is the, it, the the other downside, right? Like you said, is the use it or lose it aspect of the traditional long-term care. So a lot of people are very proactive about this. They'll start thinking about it in their mid 40s, early 50s, because they've seen a relative go through long-term care, whatever it may be, and they buy it. But then if someone passes away suddenly, maybe they paid into this thing for 25 years and then they never see a dollar back out of it. Whereas with the, the hybrid asset base, there is a death benefit. and um, the other part that's nice is you can design it to, you know, say that you want it to last for five years. You could design it as such and say that it was a $500,000 kind of bucket of money and you only used $200,000, then that $300,000 would be paid out in the form of a death benefit to the beneficiary. So that's kind of nice too, knowing that it's not just something that you're paying for. Now, I'm also a big proponent um, and, and respect when people say insurance for the sake of insurance, right? Like you, that, That's kind of what insurance is, right? That's kind of how your car payment is. That's kind of how your home payment, like home and auto are. If you don't use it, obviously you just keep paying the premiums on them, right? So that's what true insurance is, but it can be a good option for people that kind of want to explore um, an alternative. And so in terms of rates and what it costs, what is typically the best age to start to start shopping for long-term care insurance? Yeah. If you want a really great deal, right? Uh, or you want it to be a lot cheaper. If you start looking in your mid forties, it could be a really, really good deal. Now, some people still kind of see that as a little bit early. Um, we, the, the vast majority of people that we see looking at it are in their, you know, fifties and early sixties. Um, after you start looking kind of getting closer to 70, their price becomes a lot more expensive. So at that time, a lot of people are kind of priced out just because they're not willing to, to, to pay the premiums that would be associated with a policy at that age. So I'd say the sweet spot is really 40. If you can get it between 45 and 60, you could probably still get a pretty good deal on it. Anytime after that, on a year-by-year -year basis, you're going to see it go up quite a bit. And usually, or at least like what, what I've seen on my end, it, it's going to cost a little bit more for ladies. 
Yeah, it does. So um, whenever you're talking about anything that's associated with disabilities, right, which kind of not being able to do a lot of that stuff, the, the activities of daily living is, is associated with, in some capacity, you're a little bit disabled, right? And so anytime you're talking about disability, anything, it's typically going to be more expensive for ladies. And then when you're talking about life insurance, it's going to be more expensive for men because we typically die sooner, right? And so those are those are kind of the caveats of the insurance game is, is disability associated stuff more expensive for women because they go to the doctor more statistically, they get things checked out that, you know, um, and, and then men were stubborn. So, uh, you know, we, we usually pass away sooner. So it's a little bit more expensive for the life insurance. We usually tend to take, take more risks too. take more risks. You got it. The next question that I wanted to ask you is what would you say to people that are maybe working with the same person on investments, uh, or for investments and insurance? Yeah. So what I would say is, um, I don't think that necessarily you're you're a terrible advisor just because you do both. I do think there's a lot more to look at in terms of conflict of interest there, because there needs to be a level of transparency in that relationship, right? Uh, and you need to be knowing how they're compensated, why they're recommending what they're recommending. And I would say the best way to do it, and this is a situation that many, many people are approached with. And so I always tell people when I get this question, if they're recommending that you put a certain amount of money in the insurance policy, so call it a whole life insurance policy, and then they're recommending that you put a certain amount of money into the investments, right? So say that they want you to put $1,000 into the investment account a month, and they want you to put $1,000 into the insurance account a month. Ask them how much they're going to make on each one of those. And then see what you think about it, because chances are they're not going to make very much at all off the investments. And then if you know if if they're putting twelve, if you're going to put twelve thousand dollars into an insurance account, they're probably going to make close to that, you know, between eight eight and ten thousand dollars that first year on that account. So um, understand how they're understand the way that they're compensated. Understand that they are incentivized, uh, especially if they're at a captive company or a career company, to sell you that stuff. Um, doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. Not every bad, not every commission advisor is bad, but I do think there is something to be said for working with an advisor who is going to look at your overall financial plan, separate the insurance and investments, specialize in a field, um, like Ryan or the other advisors that we kind of work with. And then, uh, you know, send you to an expert who's going to help you with the other stuff. And it all works and there's less there's less collateral, right? So if you send us somebody to help with insurance, you're not compensated on it. So that your insurance recommendation is going to be according to the plan. It's not going to be anything that they don't need because you don't have any other incentive other than to get them the right insurance. So if you work with a professional that does both, make sure the transparency is there and ask them how they act in a fiduciary capacity and, and what that looks like for them. And it doesn't mean that what they're recommending, you know, if they are recommending a permanent policy or what have you, and th their commission that they're going to make on that is is greater than on a on a term policy or a different type of policy. It doesn't mean that it, it, it's not the right recommendation. It's just you you need to understand that there is a conflict of interest that is there, and that it's very real and it does exist. Yes, absolutely. Well, and and like you said. Could there be a situation, right? Are you talking about long-term care? Are you talking about special needs planning? Are you talking about, um, you know, estate planning? Okay, well, then you're having a legitimate conversation there, right? But if you can't think of any real reason or, or the four that I kind of listed off, why they would be recommending that, you got to ask more questions. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to say, say to the people before we uh, come to a close? I would say um, just make sure when you're talking to insurance professionals or you're talking to uh, people that do insurance and investments, um, or you're talking to your financial plan in general, don't be afraid to ask more questions. More questions are better questions. And I always tell people that the more knowledgeable you can be, the more you can understand why you're buying what you're buying, the better off you're going to be. And if there's ever any lack of transparency, run, right? Like don't, don't, don't be listening to that person. If they're not willing to answer how they get paid, if they're not willing to be transparent with you, if they can't explain why they're recommending something, um, just understand that. But other than that, you know, I think, I think people tend to be generally good, but you do have to watch out for, uh, kind of the slime balls out there. Yeah. If it walks like a duck and it, uh, talks like a duck, it might be a duck, probably a duck. Call the spade a spade. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Brock, if, uh, if people would like to learn more about you and BC brokerage, where can they go to find that information? Yeah. So you can check me out on LinkedIn. It's it's Brock, B-R-O-C. There's no K on my first name. Um, Buckles, B-U-C-K-L-E-S, bc-brokerage.com. I'm also on Twitter at Brock underscore uh, Buckles. So you can connect with me on any of those. I'm pretty active. I post daily, so you can find me there. Yeah. You get your daily harassment from the uh, permanent, permanent life insurance folks, right? I get trolled on by permanent life insurance folks all the time. <laughs> and uh, we'll be sure to put, or I'll be sure to put a link uh, to how you can get in touch with Brock in the show notes of this episode. Brock, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and for helping change the way that people think about insurance. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Atomic Retirement. Be sure to check out the show notes for helpful links and resources mentioned in today's episode. Are you over 50 and in or near retirement? Well, taxes might be your single biggest retirement expense, especially if you have mid six or seven figures in pre-tax retirement accounts like 401ks and traditional IRAs. What is your plan to ensure you aren't overpaying the IRS in retirement? If I could find legal and ethical opportunities to help you lower your retirement tax bill with strategic tax planning, would you like me to show you? If so, I'm offering a free, no-obligation retirement tax assessment for you. We'll meet through Zoom and address your top financial concerns. And I find that taxes are usually towards the top of that list. To get started, visit AtomicPlanning.com and click the Contact Us button to schedule a meeting time that works best for you. At no obligation, we'll meet through Zoom, and I'll provide you with a complimentary retirement tax analysis that estimates how much you and your heirs might pay in taxes to the IRS. We'll discuss ways you may be able to lower that six- or seven-figure tax bill with tax planning. And I want to be clear, you should pay every cent of tax you owe to the IRS, but by being proactive, you can be in control of your tax bill and pay it on your own terms. Schedule your free retirement tax analysis now by going to atomicplanning.com. Do you love the podcast and find it helpful? If so, you can bet that other people will find it helpful too. Please hit the subscribe button, leave a five-star review, and a short comment on Apple Podcast. 
you have the power to help, and your review can help people find answers to their retirement questions. And spread the word. Please share this episode with someone you think may enjoy it too. Thanks again for taking the time to listen, and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Atomic Retirement. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and it is not investment, tax, or legal advice. Clients of Atomic Planning may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this communication. I try my best to bring you valuable information, but I may not know anything about you or your personal situation, so please talk with your fee-only financial planner, tax, and or legal professionals before taking any action or making any decision about your own financial plan. Atomic Planning is a veteran-owned Kansas State Registered Investment Advisor providing independent tax and retirement planning.